Hello and welcome to episode number 11. If you've made it this far, then congratulations. If you're a first-time listener, then go back into the archives and listen to all the other episodes. They're all there, just waiting for you, ready for your oral delight. Apologies for sounding bunged up, it's because I am bunged up with this crappy cold that I can't seem to shake off. But, you know me, I soldier on. I suffer in a dignified silence and march on regardless. No, no, please, I only do it for you, my listeners. Thank you for all the positive feedback about the last episode, um, episode number 10, featuring Dominic Frisbee. I've had some good messages telling me you enjoyed it and enjoyed hearing the National Anthem of Libertaria once again, which indeed you would be right to because it is the best song in the world ever. Incidentally, Dominic's brand new book, which we spoke about a little bit in that episode, uh, Daylight Robbery, How Tax Shaped Our Past and Will Change Our Future, I've actually finished reading now, and I can honestly say, all biases aside, it is a tremendous read, extremely uh, enjoyable as well as informative, and the analysis of the shifts we're seeing in the economy as well as technological advancements and the effect it will have on the future of taxation is some, some real food for thought. I highly recommend checking it out. For details on how to get your copy, or if you want a signed copy from the man himself, then go back and listen to episode number 10, and all the details are there. Okay, as some of you may know, at the Libertarian Party conference in Manchester a couple of weeks ago, we had the official launch of the new manifesto. Many of the policies you will have heard me discuss in previous episodes of this podcast in some detail, where I spoke with various key people behind each of those policies in the Libertarian Party. You can now go and view the entire manifesto and read all the details for each policy for yourself at the party's website, which is www libertarianparty.co.uk Today I'm going to be talking about the healthcare policy with my special guest Adam Brown. Adam is the leader of the Libertarian Party and he's going to chat with me about healthcare as well as a bit about the Libertarian Party itself. So without further ado, it's my pleasure to welcome Adam Brown onto the show. Hi Adam, how are you doing? Thanks for joining me on the podcast and uh, you're here today to talk about the healthcare policy. Yep, that's right. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, the present healthcare system in the UK, uh, the NHS, is a system that is far too politically controlled and it seems way too big to manage. And a lot of the fundamental problems stem from the fact that it is, in effect, a centralised form of bureaucracy. What are the Libertarian Party's solutions towards remedying this? Well, we, we come out from a position of looking at what is wrong with the healthcare in this country. Um, and for me, it's not necessarily about the healthcare itself. But as you say, it's far too political. So our policy is to look at trying to remove politics from healthcare. Um, all sides of our current political system in Westminster look at healthcare as a something they can use to get votes, um, or b something they can use to actually interfere into the lives of people. So areas like the sugar tax, um, you know, the reason that they can introduce that is because they can say we're trying to save money for the NHS. Therefore, we need to implement these additional taxes. We need to control people's lives. So as libertarians, we fundamentally believe that people are in control of their own lives 
obviously it makes sense that as long as there's an NHS that is a political tool, not a healthcare tool, um, we'll never be able to give people back personal freedoms. Yeah, I'm, f- I'm fully on board with that. It's, um, it's used as political currency, as political capital, isn't it? As you say, basically to buy votes with. The following, I've got some information I've taken here from the government's own website, the Office of National Statistics. Uh, I just want to read something to you now. Avoidable mortality in the UK for the year 2016, which are deaths from causes that are considered avoidable in the presence of timely and effective healthcare or public interventions. And it goes on to say, in 2016, approximately 24% of all deaths in the UK were considered avoidable. That's 141,000 uh, deaths out of 597,206 which is quite a lot. Amongst children and young people aged 0 to 19 years, 34% of all deaths in the UK were considered avoidable in 2016. Now, now that's from their own statistics, and as I know through economics, government statistics are usually not an accurate representation. They're usually far worse than what they tell you. I know that through the inflation figures and the way GDP works and that. Um, But this, as far as... um, healthcare is concerned this is simply unacceptable and the fact that the NHS is unaccountable is also unacceptable yet why do you think the NHS is worshipped and so revered despite all its terrible failings and the fact that there are plenty of healthcare models abroad that put our systems to shame both in terms of results and cost effectiveness yeah so I think the way I always look at stuff is when you're trying to find the reason that something is in a bad situation you have to look at who is who benefits. Um, unfortunately, in this country, the people who benefit the most from the NHS are the politicians and the bureaucrats who keep it running. Um, so we do have a lot of people uh, who would rather the NHS fail than it reform. So there's no incentive, there's no accountability to pick up your word. Um, this is why one of our main policies is to bring out a kind of an accountable healthcare council that will look after healthcare in each area. You know, we always talk about the postcode lottery um, and how that kind of has an effect where people aren't getting the care they need. But this is actually a symptom of centralised bureaucracy. If you have one rule coming from the centre, it can't be flexible enough for the people, the different needs we have in different communities up and down the country. So, you know, unless we can take control of healthcare from national politicians and move it to local healthcare professionals, you're always going to end up with this kind of problem. Um, In terms of why is the NHS so revered, despite the fact it is failing in many places, it's a simple, again, it's politics. The government and the the people involved in the NHS, they want the conversation to be about, you know, our NHS, NHS saved my life, these kind of elements. But in fact, the NHS is the bureaucracy. It's doctors and nurses who save the lives and they're being as let down by the NHS as the patients. So, you know, until we change this conversation and we get away from this idea that seems to be we have an NHS that does everything or we have a US system where people die in the streets if their credit cards are rejected. You know, there are many different bits in between. Many countries out there have healthcare that isn't the NHS or a completely um, private system you know even the american system isn't actually as people like to put it into the story but even if it was you know many um, countries out there have a kind of hybrid system that we we think works well it gives better results and makes sure that everybody has the care that they need 
Absolutely. I mean, I'm fully on board with you when you say the incentive is there to fail in most government institutions because what happens when a government institution is failing, they throw more money at it. You know, where if that was um, a private operation, any business, whether it's, you know, a grocery shop or a mechanic, any business at all, if the failure's there, the business dies. So I'm fully on board with what you're saying. Through the national insurance tax... Uh, the average taxpayer will more often than not over the course of time pay many times over the actual provisions for the services they require. How does the Libertarian Party's policy ensure that people and the taxpayer get better value for the money they actually pay? Well, obviously the most important area of that is to understand what people are actually paying. So as long as you have a system where you're paying an amount and you don't really understand where it's going, it's very easy for the government to move stuff around and to try and kind of do some smoke and mirrors to make you not realize what you're getting. Um, obviously you always hear that the NHS is free. Um, we all both know it's not free service. It's a free at the point of use service, but it still has to be paid for. So the idea that people are getting something for nothing is kind of ingrained into society. And until we can move away from that, we're never going to be able to get people to understand um, that they are paying and they're paying a lot and they're probably paying a lot more than they would have to pay under another system. Uh, obviously, our approach to that is to make sure that it's very clear. Um, we believe in transparency and taxation. So we want to move the el element of taxation that goes to healthcare into a separate health tax. Um, at that point, people will actually understand how much is being paid. It also moves accountability. Um, as I said before, we want healthcare councils who will actually be in charge of running this in a local place. Um, they will obviously be accountable um, and electable, which means that they will have to stand up in front of the electorate every year, um, sorry, every four years, and they'll say, you know, this is what we've delivered. This is how much it's cost you. And you can compare that to other um, regional bodies and say, well, you know, how come it's costing us twice as much as it costs them over there? Or how come our results are twice as bad as they've got? Um, in which case, it means that it's accountable. People can actually be held to account and they can be measured and therefore it can be improved. As you said a second ago, when you have a business that isn't performing, it fails. But healthcare, when it fails, you know, it's a disaster for the people that it's supposed to be treating. So we need to find a way of understanding when it's starting to fail so that we can fix it before it gets there. As you mentioned uh, just now about people believe the NHS to be a free system, which anyone knows it isn't if you actually uh, engage your brain a little bit, you know, you pay huge amounts of tax towards it, uh, which leads it to probably the most sort of sensitive or emotional argument where people believe they're getting things for free as such. People like uh, the poor or the need or the most vulnerable, they but sort of believe in liber libertarian sort of ethos is uh, very selfish and uh, totally ignore the needs of the poor and the needy. So, how does the Libertarian Party approach universal health care? As in, does it support it? And if so, how would it be funded? Yes, yeah, so obviously, saying that libertarians only care about the rich or they dislike the poor or anything else is obviously something that I've, we find quite often. Um, I don't even know where people understand that. Nothing I've ever read in libertarian philosophy. No. It'd be nice to have a, a bit of financial support from the rich, to be honest. Well, exactly. At the end of the day, we don't get a lot of support from millionaires because we were not willing to do them favours. Right. Um, the same way we don't get support from the unions because we won't do them favours either. When you're completely neutral, you find that 
people don't find the value in giving to you. But in terms of healthcare, libertarianism has always been a very caring philosophy because we believe, unlike everyone else, that if you give people freedom, they will make good choices. So if you can give people the freedom to actually help other people, they will want to do it. At the end of the day, people who are out there regularly say, I don't mind paying taxes to give universal healthcare. I don't believe that will change. You know, the fact that we're going to allow people to have a better service and to, and to keep more of their money won't make them less generous. It will make them more generous. So people will be happy to pay, in my opinion, they'll be happy to pay towards healthcare. Obviously, the question to us isn't about whether it should have universal healthcare, but how we deliver it. So we we do support a um, an insurance-based program, but an insurance-based program where everybody is entitled to a basic level of healthcare. So when a company wants to get into the market, they will develop what is their basic level of healthcare, and then they have to offer that to everybody who wants it. So it needs to be priced into their product that they will have to offer that to everybody. It then means you still have the competition. Obviously, we believe competition is the best way to improve services. But by having it so that everyone's available, it means that the competition will be between different healthcare providers, not between one healthcare provider trying to get different policies. So every company that offers healthcare will offer a basic policy, um, and then that will be delivered to everybody. It just means that we do ha- we keep what is good about the NHS, which is that when it was started, it was designed to care about people and to make sure that ev- nobody was ever worried um, about the effects of a sudden medical emergency. And we want to retain that. Um, and I think it is the right way to go. And I think it's the way that the market itself would always go because if you were picking a healthcare policy, wouldn't you pick the one that was going to continue to look after you in ca- after you have a, an issue instead of the one that would kick you out and so that you'd have to try and find another um, provider with an existing issue? It's good customer service to give good customer service. So by you know having a healthcare um, provider who would not look after their customers, they'll soon go out of business. That's the free market and that's how the market actually cares itself because customers care and it's customers that have all the power absolutely it seems a really strange thing to me that people generally don't grasp that concept that in a free market where competition thrives the consumer wins because competition drives down prices whilst improving quality yet it seems to be a fact that's lost on most people i think is important well, in, liberty. sorry go on yeah i was gonna say well in the free market you know the, the, the old saying of money is power but money comes from customers all of the power in the free market, 100%. If we want to be an environmental capitalist society, spend your money with environmental companies. If you want to be a caring society, spend your money with caring like companies. Yeah, there is no capitalist elite who control the market. That's the whole point of it. Well, there is at the moment. It's called the government and lobbyists. But once we remove them, there is nobody controls it. People control it. So the issues that are important to people are important to companies, and that's the way that the, com- the society will go. Yeah, it's it's obvious yeah. to me, but for some reason, no one else seems to pick it up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, know, I mean, every time I give one of my economic seminars and I talk about free markets, I always emphasize this point, that all the market is is millions and millions of people making choices and decisions to their preferences you know but for some reason that seems a a, a negative concept in the eyes of these more sort of socialist authoritarian regime doesn't it yeah exactly due to the unaccountability of the health service uh, reported 7.6 billion a year of taxpayers money is wasted 
which is a huge chunk that is gets spent on bureaucracy. How does the party propose to reduce such wastage and such a drain on public finances? Well, again, I think this comes down to the two main elements. So the accountability section is massive. Once you have somebody whose position it is to stand in front of the people he represents and say to them, this is what we've spent your money on, you find that waste quickly goes. You know, when you have a large company that is given a monopoly, um, even anywhere outside of healthcare, you'll find that their service becomes overly bureaucratic because they don't have to worry about attracting money coming in. Um, But as soon as you change that and you make it so that the person has to stand up and give accountability to the people paying as to what they're getting for their money, then the bureaucracy goes away, the money stops getting wasted. Uh, In terms of obviously the changes to the tax code that we talked about, that's going to have a massive effect because people will start to actually see how much they're paying. I find it quite funny that people are very keen to protect the NHS um, and saying, you know, the NHS needs more money. We need, you know, it just needs another 5 billion because it can't operate on the 160 billion it currently does, but 165 billion. But yet council tax, people go crazy about because their local parish council has raised their council tax by 4% from £75.80 to £75.95 or whatever it is. Um, But the only difference is you see one, you don't see the other. As soon as you see how much you're paying, people will start to demand value for money. Um, As soon as you kind of see some of the waste in the reports that would need to be generated, you know, do you know how many press officers your local um, health trust has? You know, how many, um, I can't think of the different kind of roles they have but you know I, I saw an advert a couple of years ago I forget the salary on offer but it was very high uh, for an equality and diversity officer which seems a bit you know excessive when you have hospitals crying out for dialysis machines and things you know that's the point surely the only diversity a hospital needs to worry about is the diversity between people who are ill and getting service and people who aren't and shouldn't be getting service exactly. so you know, what are you going to do to just work out that you've got an equal share of men and women in your hospital and not give service to people that are ill yeah. just because you happen to be up this week? You know, healthcare shouldn't be about targets and statistics. It should be about need and provision. Exactly. Who who cares who's working for you, you know, as long as they're competent to do, do the job, isn't it, you know? Can you sum up the general overall aim of the Libertarian Party's healthcare policy? Yes, I think the the kind of headline that I use to discuss it with people is get politics out of healthcare. I think that sums up what our main goal is. It's to stop the health of this country being used as a political football. You know, the the election was finally voted through last week um, and within 24 hours, both of the main parties had released their blueprint for the NHS. You know, the Labour mentioned on a weekly basis you know, the Tories are uh, going to privatise the NHS. Um, you know, the Tories have actually managed the NHS for over half its existence and haven't privatised it yet. So I don't think that's actually even part of what they're looking for. At the end of the day, it's a scare tactic to try and get people to be conforming to the way that people want them to do. Um, so, yeah, we have to get politics out. It's the only way that we'll ever get healthcare to even be able to look at itself and to work out what's wrong. Um, but then below getting politics out, our main policy goal is to make it accountable, transparent and fit for purpose. 
Absolutely. I think every single election, going back to the beginning of your point there, is our last chance to save the NHS, isn't it? Every single time. So uh, how many how many times is our last chance to save the NHS? And I was at a meeting about 15 years ago that said that if we didn't do something now, the NHS wouldn't last till the end of the year. Yeah. But it's still going and it's still completely resistant to reform. So, you know, nothing's changed. Like climate change in a way, isn't it? Every We've only got 10 years to live until another 10 years. And then, you know, it'll be 12 years. You know, it's it's uh, it's just a constant scare tactic, isn't it, for political manoeuvring, really? Well, that, and just like climate change, you know, I don't doubt that we need to protect our environment and we need to protect the healthcare. But the problem is we never... We're never scared enough for the politicians to be kept in line completely. So unless they can tell us that the world will end by next Tuesday, they know that we'll continue getting on with our lives. So, you know, they need to always keep us in this kind of constant theme of being scared so that we're happy to hand over more and more power to them in the hopes of something for us. Once you sort of cultivate that negativity, be it fear, anger or anything, you become easier to manipulate as we uh, have seen time and time again. What do you think is the single most vital change or reform needed to the present healthcare system as it stands? Yeah, so obviously, apart from being out of um, massive political control, I think in terms of the actual delivery, it needs regionalism. You know, it's um, the National Health Service is quite remarkable and unique in its pure the size. Um, you know, I think. Um, it's probably a bit out of date now, but I remember hearing that the NHS is the third biggest um, employer after uh, the Indian Railway and the Chinese State Army or something along those lines. You know, it's a massive organisation and in any large organisation, you cannot get from the centre through 17, 18 different layers of bureaucracy to the people that need help and stay connected to your customers. You know, look at any large company that starts to get into trouble. And the first thing they do is they look to break up their company so they can focus on the core deliverables. So one of our goals is obviously devolution into regional health councils, which will have control of a regional area. And that way, the people who are making the decisions are right there in front of the people it's affecting. And they're actually kind of, you know, there to be questioned and to give their reasons as well so that it's not a faceless like nice the body who have to decide on which drugs are available at the moment is a, a faceless um committee who make decisions that affect the lives of thousands of people but it's very difficult to actually know who they are and how you influence them you know it should be taken at a local level so that people can actually deal with what needs different communities have at different times Absolutely, I agree. And that's pretty much my philosophy for everything to do with government and the state and local council. I'm, I'm sure yours is too as a libertarian. Decisions are always best made locally, regardless of what it is. So I agree. I think it's, um, personally, I think it's a great healthcare policy. And just for my listeners to let you know, you can see the whole policy in the manifesto at www.libertarianparty.co.uk. Moving on from healthcare. You are the leader of the Libertarian Party, aren't you? So that makes you our equivalent of Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> so um, as a leader of the party, where do you hope to see the party in the next 10 years? Yes, I think the uh, being the leader of the Libertarian Party is probably a unique position within politics 
um, we are, after all, the party who hates authority. Um, when you're libertarians, you don't really want to be the one to stand up and say, I'm in charge. Um, so, yeah, as leader, um, we have to have a leader. It's the Electoral Commission's rules that there must be a leader of the party. So, essentially, I'm accountable for if anybody else does anything wrong, I'm the one who gets in trouble. So, it's more of a, uh, a dangerous position than a uh, honorary one. Mm-hmm. Um, so, my goal is to make sure that the party exists because we live in a country where people out there honestly believe that the opposite of Labour is conservative. Um, They think that the entire spectrum goes from the conservatives in the centre-right to Labour in the centre-left, and that it's a simple align, whereas obviously as libertarians we think that the difference between authoritarian and libertarian is much bigger than left or right, Um, and it's about how much freedom you have compared to how much freedom is taken from you. So, you know, we just need to make sure that people understand that choice. Um, being a ideologically led party rather than a kind of power-led party, I suppose, as the others are, um, you know, uh, we have a kind of a different idea. So for us, it's actually great just knowing that libertarian views are being out there, that some people understand that, economics is actually a good way of running your economy um you know it's it's more about making sure that we're always present um obviously the more we do the more people we attract the more our ideas win people over i think our ideas are very straightforward you know the the fact that it's seen as a kind of an out there idea that people should have the right to live their lives as they wish if they're not hurting people or that people should have the right to actually keep some of their money at the end of the month. You know, it's, these aren't crazy ideas. This is is just common sense. It it makes perfect sense to people. Um, You know, I think one of my best analogies for libertarianism is that when your child falls over, when they're first learning to walk, you don't pick them up and put them in a wheelchair. You let them get up and try again. And that's what we need to do for the public at large. So our goal is to make sure that people understand that there is a choice out there, that people are able to actually fulfil their potential um, and that the party will always be there to be somewhere that people can gather um, who have those views. It's interesting what you said there about the dynamics between sort of the left and right paradigm being more importantly a case of authoritarianism versus libertarianism. Um, I personally, from my own accounts and what I'm seeing so it's only anecdotally um, I think that there's a more of a shift in public consciousness towards that sort of uh, belief of authoritarianism versus libertarianism particularly because of more than anything Brexit Um, do you think that's the same thing in your opinion do you think uh, the public consciousness is rapidly or more waking up to the paradigm shift from left to right rather than libertarianism to authoritarianism yeah, so I'd, I'd say that possibly even before that, obviously the Libertarian Party was founded in 2008. Um, so if you look at kind of the expenses scandal um, followed by the um, the big credit crunch that we had, um, which again was in a lot of ways caused by government interference in the market, um, as much as they'd like you to blame banks, it was actually caused by the government forcing the banks to do something that was against their commercial interests. Um, but you, from that point onwards, you've kind of had this constant stream of people waking up to the government's kind of ineptitude and starting to think, 
you know, maybe we shouldn't just keep giving these people more power when they clearly can't actually even do the basic tasks that we think that they should be doing. Um, I've often said that as a party, one of the best things, or just as libertarians generally, one of the best things we could actually do to get more members is to encourage people to contact the government more. Because I think the more you deal with the government, the more you see what they're doing, you know, the more you think, actually, I don't trust these people to deliver what they're saying. And Brexit, for me, is just a great example of that. I think the best thing about it is that it's kind of, for us libertarians, we can look around at all the other people and go, yeah, this is what we've been telling you. They have been useless all along. This is just the first time you've realised. So I think the idea that government is a necessary evil um, has always been around, but now people are starting to question whether evil should actually be in the world in the first place. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's um, one of the things I was reading recently, a great book about the history of tax, as it goes, by Dominic Frisby. And one of the points he makes in there is that your biggest expenditure, your biggest purchase you'll ever make in your life is not a house, it's not a car, it's your government. That's the most you'll ever spend on. And I think when more and more people realising just what they're spending on the government, and I don't mean just directly, but I mean indirectly through things like inflation as well, and also how our children and our grandchildren, how we're basically mortgaging them off because they're going to be paying our debts. Um, I think the more and more people awaken to that and they realise they're not actually getting much bang for their buck at all. Um, I think Brexit has played quite a crucial role in this country in helping that stream of consciousness become aware, as you say. So that's the one good thing about the whole Brexit mess, I think, is uh, <laughs> how it's woken people up. Other than the healthcare policy, which we've already discussed, what other areas of policy radically needs reform the most? Well, I think if you take into account what has been happening um, in the country this year, it's really brought home what is probably the, the, well, it's the first element of our manifesto and one of our main um, policy positions we've had for a long time, which is the written constitution for the UK. So, you know, when um, Johnson prorogued Parliament, we heard in all of the papers, everyone was saying, you know, this is a constitutional crisis. You know, he's broken the British constitution, the constitution's in tatters and stuff. And it's like, well, we don't have a constitution. We've never actually had a written constitution. We're one of the countries that is possibly just because we are so old and we, we don't tend to uh, rebel a lot. We've always just kind of had a constitution that consists of, well, that's the way we've always done it. So therefore that must be the way it does. But as soon as you have somebody who comes along and doesn't play by the same rules, you find that your uh, your gentleman's agreement is only as good as the gentleman you've agreed it with, which these days isn't what it's uh, worth the paper it's written on. So yeah, we push heavily for a written constitution. Um, one area of the constitution that is the most important to me is the idea of regionalism. So one of the things that we're acutely aware of in this country is that we started a process of devolution under the Blair government. Um, and I think it's actually a good thing. You know, I like the Welsh Assembly and the Scottish Parliament. Um, and I think it's a good concept to actually give that devolution to the regions. Um, the regions do have different reasons, they have different needs. Um, just like with healthcare, the same is true for all kind of government centrally planned areas. The idea that a company who base themselves in Leeds, for example, would have to charge the same um, business rates as a company who charge themselves, base themselves in London, 
even though if you're based in London, you're going to save a lot of money in your um, like your travel because all the other companies are there and you've got a, kind of a better talent pool and all the rest of it from just the amount of people around in the area. And yet you're still paying the same taxes. So why would you ever base yourself up in Leeds or in you know, Glasgow? Um, and these are places that need to be able to actually compete for um, business. They need to be able to compete for taxation to be based there so that they can run their economies and they can catch up. Um, as long as we kind of keep this centralised system, you're going to find that London, the South East, continues to be where the money's made and where the houses are too unaffordable um, and people won't move out to the regions. So a core area of our constitution is looking at regionalism, making sure that it's fair for the UK. Um, and it's something that I passionately believe in, as you said earlier. Decisions should be made close to the people they affect because that's the only way that you'll be able to take account of what effect it will actually have. Um, one of the main issues we have with government is that every decision the government makes has the law of unattended consequences. The government constantly makes a rule and then has to make another rule to try and solve that rule. You know, I remember when they banned um, or they made a limit to the amount you could win on a fixed bets um, betting machine. Um, and as a result, everybody then brought in multiple machines. So they try to stop multiple machines in a shop. So then people started opening multiple shops and then they banned how many shops you could have in one area. And then all the shops closed down and everyone was like, well, why are our high streets closing down? Why are all these shops going away? It's like, because it was a bubble created by a government idea of something that they thought they should do to restrict freedom. And if they just left it alone in the first place, none of that would have been necessary. So it's rules after rules. So, you know, I don't propose for a second that regional regionalism will solve that, but it just means that there's more people out there making decisions based on the facts that they can actually see. Um, and there's more examples out there for competition. You know, competition between governments is one of the things that you just never get. You know, governments always operate as a monopoly. And as much as they sit around saying monopolies are bad and we have the Monopolies and Mergers Commission or whatever they call these days to try and stop monopolies. And yet the government is always a monopoly. And until you have a position where you kind of can actually look at different government situations, you know, how is that ever going to improve? What does an ideal libertarian society look like? Well, at the end of the day, an ideal libertarian society doesn't really look like anything other than what you want it to look like for yourself. You know, the whole point of libertarianism is that if you're not harming me, then I don't care what you do. So, you know, if you want to be a, a naturist and sit around in your garden naked good on you that's your libertarian society for me it's a a world where i get to keep more than 40 percent of my money to actually look at the needs that i have you know i think a libertarian society has to be a caring society i think charities will always play a massive part in any libertarian society because at the end of the day libertarians care about people and care about people fulfilling their potential um and the best way to deliver that is through charities who can again be local can understand the need of what is happening in front of them. I think given a pure libertarian society, everybody would be surprised by just how little it actually costs if everyone's just nice to each other. You know, if uh, people actually take some pride in what they're doing, they don't have that kind of entitlement culture that the government is so keen on actually spreading to us, you'll find that people take a bit more care of their environment and suddenly the costs of actually 
keeping places clean and undoing the damage that tends to be done by people who have a kind of a neglectful attitude. Um, so there's a lot more money in everyone's pocket. Everything's cheaper. Um, yeah, it's a wonderful world. I hope we get there soon. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you said earlier, when people have more money in their pocket, they tend to be a bit more generous. So, I mean, it's this entrenched belief that if the government isn't forcing you to pay for helping someone, that people ain't going to help someone. But that's not true. So one of the things you find a lot that happens is that the government actually are in competition with charities. You know, um, I used to be a counsellor in Crawley and one of the people there set up a dementia um a dementia session so people with dementia and their carers could come in and they could just have a couple of hours of respite from dealing with their day-to-day lives um now this was before dementia got into the press um, no one else cared the, the, the lady who was running it had a relative with dementia which is why it started as i find most of the best charities start because somebody has a direct impact and they want to do something about it um when dementia got to its current state where it's a very high profile now the council decided that it also wanted to get involved in dementia so they started up an, a separate session um they then started to um look at the different sessions and decided that this latest session because it was running a council center had to be run by the council um team so you know they took over basically this lady's session um, and then decided that they had too many sessions, so they closed that one down. And it was like, why are the government in the in the business of putting charities out of business because they don't like the competition? It's like, at the end of the day, charities should always work together to provide the service, because as long as people are getting care, does it really matter whether it's being delivered publicly or privately? And yet, here we have a council taking away somebody who is actually committed in order to ensure that their service is the primary service and that they can get a little tag to say that they're a dementia-friendly town. You know, it's, it's ridiculous. That's absolutely ridiculous. So, I mean, when you look at sort of government or, you know, local councils, they always like to basically brag about how much people or how much people they're helping, how many people are on their books, so to speak. Yet the goal of the private charities is to brag about how many people they've taken off their books in in effect it is it is a ridiculous system and if you go back to sort of the 19th century um when there was a small government as such and less government intervention we saw a huge boom worldwide in sort of philanthropy and altruistic sort of goings on you know i I fully agree that the private charities they're more geared towards what the causes and needs are they're more sensitive to it they know what they need and again it goes back to everything what we said about healthcare, what we said about just general central planning the more sort of centrally um, run something is you have no idea of what's needed where's needed so yeah it is i don't understand this need for the government to be in competition with charity well no exactly and i think at the end of the day as well the government don't actually care about anybody you know the government is an organization made up of civil servants civil servants have the ability to care on an individual basis as any human but a government cannot care about people because it's it's an establishment it's not an actual a human being but at, at the end of the day no entity that isn't a human can actually care you know humans care um and charities that are run by individuals who care about what they're doing are very impressive you know 
charities that are run by somebody who's paid to be there, they just have less in, interest in actually getting the success. You know, it, one of their goals is probably normally to uh, ensure their funding for another year by making sure that problem still exists. Okay, before we wrap this up, there is the small uh, little fact of something coming up called a general election, which some people may have noticed is happening next month. Um, <laughs> I believe you're going to be a candidate running. Uh, is that true? Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to be standing um, in Chichester. So, um, yeah, Chichester is quite a good area for um, our beliefs in showing what the issue is. Um, you know, we it's an area where there's a lot of pressure placed onto it through um, national government targets and it's in the southeast so it's obviously a quite a wealthy area um, but has a lot of need that isn't being delivered because of the overall wealth that is around um, and it's kind of a case of just because you live around a lot of wealthy people doesn't necessarily mean that you're actually getting the attention that you need so yeah it's definitely somewhere that I feel that um, regionalism can make a big impact, which is why I chose to stand down here. Excellent. So best of luck with that, Adam. Uh, thank you very much for your time today. It's been great having you on. Really enjoyed our chat. And thank you. Thanks to you. See you later. There we have it, folks. Thanks for listening. And thanks once again to Adam Brown, the leader of the Libertarian Party. And also, once again, don't forget to check out the manifesto which you can digitally download in PDF format from the Libertarian Party's website. If you enjoyed this show, or indeed any of the previous episodes, please share the links on all your social media platforms and help spread the word of liberty across Cyberland. You can also subscribe on Podbean at www.garethseward.podbean.com or any of the usual podcast platforms including spotify apple and all the rest have yourselves a good day wherever you may be and keep up the good fight of spreading the words of liberty freedom peace and prosperity catch you all next time the